Well, you know, if, if Hondo's going to come up here and start speaking his na- native language, I feel like I need to come up here and start speaking my language, but I don't know if any of y'all are going to be understanding me if I start doing like this, so we're going to talk normal. That's fine. Anyone not awake yet? We got some people still sleepy? Anyone here waiting for that morning cup of coffee to kick in? You finished setting up chairs, you went over, had some of the great coffee from Nathan. You refused to wake up? Coffee makes you tired. You know, it, it kind of does me too. You probably have ADHD like me. You just wake up? I know, I know people like you. I love you anyway. I love you anyway. Okay, well, you know what? While we're giving a chance for us to wake up, maybe some coffee to kick in, I want us to kind of try to transition our mind from all the worries of the week, from just the, the things that distract us, and focus on the upcoming message that we're going to be going over this morning in Matthew. And to do that, I want to ask you guys one fairly simple question. You ready? You think you can handle this? How tall do you think this is? Taller than you are? Now that's a great, thank you, that's actually a great thing what I'm going to do. I want you to imagine how we could measure this this morning just with what you have on you right now. How tall are you? What do you think? Okay, what else, what else could we use? Yes. Okay, so you actually have a measuring device on you? Yeah, Ian. True, true. What else? Yeah, Fox? His shoe is exactly one foot long. Okay, so what size is your shoe? What, what size? A 12? Okay, so I, I only am a modest 10 and a half, which is right at about, I want to say 11 inches or 10.75 inches. Uh, so yeah, I, I could. We could use our shoe and, you know, maybe it would be size, uh, I don't know, eight. It'd be about eight fox size feet or U.S. size 12 shoe. What else could we use? Could we use this? What is this? A, a cubit? Yeah, this is actually a biblical unit of measurement. This is, an average, about 18 inches, unless you're a royal, and then you put your hand on top. And then you got an extra two inches, it becomes about 20 inches. So yeah, you, you could use a cubit to measure it. Uh, but what about a person? We, we, I got a volunteer for a person. Who, who thinks they are as tall as this is right here? Riley? You think you're about, oh, come, come on up, Riley. <laughs> yes, everyone, we're, we're going to use the Riley standard of measurement. Okay, so Riley, maybe, maybe you raise your hand up there. So let's see. Yeah, you, it's about one Riley long, perfect, about six feet, one inches. Okay, so yeah, we're about one, one Riley long. No, okay, hold on. You can sit down. Thank you, Riley. What, what is this? What, what have I got here? An arbitrary piece of equipment. What's a better answer? What is this? It's a tape measure. Yes. Why do, why do we use this instead of saying it is one fox or eight fox size feet? It is one R arm raised above her head, Riley height. It is so many hand breadths. Why do, why do we use this, a tape measure, instead of a unit like that? Yeah, Taylor? Because <laughs> because we're simple people, we need simple words. Well, we could, say, we could say a Riley. You know, this is one unit Riley, and that could be a standard. Why not? What do you think, Josh? I did it again. I'm sorry, Ben. 
I can't look at both of you at the same time. My, my brain will just swap it. So, then, what do you think? Everyone else, is, no one is the same. Like, everyone else is different, and people might have, also people might have different people who are named Riley. Well, yeah, but I mean, if we defined what a Riley is, we <laughs> could use it. What, what do you think? It's changing. It's changing? Riley, yeah, maybe, maybe you'll get a little taller. I don't know. A Riley could be changed, but we could say a, a Riley unit of measurement is defined as the height of Riley with her arm raised above her head on March the 5th, 2023 at approximately, what are we at, uh, 9.08 a.m. in the morning. That could be our standard, but we don't. Why? Because a lot of people have tape measures. Because a lot of people have, have tape measures. Let, let, me, let me show you guys something. This... This is a replica of the U.S. National Length Meter Bar. This is a really cool thing. Uh, back in the day, they were trying to figure out how can we define what is a meter? What is a way we can all come together and agree that this is a meter? And, and we actually ended up using this international uh, meter to define what an international yard is which we use to define what an inch is. So in a fun way, ever since the 1950s, America has been on the metric system. They defined an inch as exactly 25.4 millimeters. And they, they did it, they took over, and no one even knew. But this is what we did. So 30 nations got together. They made up the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. And in 1900s, they made only 30 copies of this. It was made out of iridium and platinum. And the reason they chose that is because they didn't really change their size based on the temperatures they'd be normally exposed to. So these 30 nations got this and they knew that they could, if they wanted to make sure that we built something the same way, using the same unit of measurement, that this was the standard. And it didn't matter if you were in Poland or if you were in America, and it didn't matter what height you were at, and it didn't matter what temperature you were at, within reason, this was going to be exactly one meter long. And it was used until 1927, because at that time we found there were much, much cooler ways to define a meter. And we used light and prisms, and it is fascinating, but it is well outside the scope of this conversation. Now, we could have just as easily made a rod like this and set it to the Riley unit of measurement. We could have. We didn't. And as a result, there's not going to be a space station car, not even a corn husk doll that uses the Riley as a unit of measurement. And as a result, the Riley has no authority here. Sorry. But hey, you know what? That is a great transition to talk about what we are going to be talking about this morning, and that is what gives something its authority. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, where we're going to be reading verses 23 to 27. That's Matthew 21, starting in verse 23, and I'll read on to verse 27. Now, I've titled this lesson, Who's in Charge Here Anyway? And the main point we're going to be seeing throughout this passage is that God is the one who gives Jesus all authority. God is the one who has given Jesus all authority. So as you turn to this passage, I'll give you all just a minute, but I want you to remember the larger context of what's going on here in Matthew chapter 21. 
the beginning of Matthew 21 starts off Matthew's account of the Passion Week. That is the week leading up to Christ's death. And who remembers, or can glance up a couple at the top of the page, what kicks off Matthew 21? Yes. The triumphal entry. And I love the, the triumphal entry. We, you know, Matthew, with his focus on Christ as king, he paints this beautiful picture of the triumphal entry. And it's a bittersweet picture because on the one hand, you have Christ riding into Jerusalem as king and the people are praising him. Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! And Jesus, getting this praise that he rightly deserves as God, comes into Jerusalem and goes into the temple itself. And can you all stop and imagine that for a second? Not since Solomon dedicated the temple Did we get a moment where the people glorified God this way as he came into the temple? Now, unlike with Solomon, when he dedicated his temple and the fire from heaven came down and took the sacrifices and the glory of God uh, visibly filled the temple, we didn't see that. Instead, we see when Jesus comes in that uh, the people are not engaged in proper worship but are being held up by those who are doing the the money changing. They're, They're praying on those who are are coming to worship God, and they're making it so that the poor can't engage in proper worship. After that, we see the barren fig tree that Christ rebukes. And does anyone remember why Christ did that? Alejandro taught about this like four days ago. Yeah, Fox? It was to show an example to the disciples. Yeah, it was an example to the disciples. And the example, what he was trying to teach them, was that people can outwardly look alive, They can look like they are spiritually minded, but when you come up, you're going to find that they have no fruit whatsoever. So the same way the fig tree, it puts out its leaves, usually at the same time, you're going to find fruit on it. Uh, And the way that this one had put out its leaves but didn't have any fruit, you're going to have people the same way. Looks like they're producing fruit, but they're not. Though in in typical disciple fashion, uh, they focus on the how he did it instead of the why he did it. And that brings us to our passage today, Uh, We're currently on Tuesday. We're about three days before the crucifixion of Jesus. So let's go ahead and read our passage for this morning. Again, that's Matthew 21 if you're not there, and I'm going to be starting in verse 23. And it reads, When he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from men, or or what was its source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, this passage is structured a lot like a debate. And in this passage, we're going to see that there are four parts to this debate. There is the duplicitous question in verse 23, where the chief priests and the elders challenge Jesus' authority. Then we're going to read Jesus' deliberate counter in verse 24 in the first half of 25 followed by the elders' deflecting answer in the second half of 25 through the first half of verse 27. And finally, we're going to see Jesus' dignified conclusion in the second half of verse 27. 
That's the duplicitous question, the deliberate counter, the deflecting answer, and the dignified conclusion. And don't worry, you don't have to copy this like as fast as you can. I'm, I'm going to put it up at the top as we go through each section. So as I change the screen here in just a second, I mean, relax. We'll, we'll cover it all. <laughs> so I want us to start off by looking at the, the duplicitous question in verse 23. The chief priests and elders come to Jesus and they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, duplicitous is a fun word. I, I like words like this a lot. In fact, my, my wife kind of gives me a hard time because I use these words, and she's like, my, your children don't understand this. What are you doing? But it's a fun word. So if you're like me, you might know this word, or if you enjoy classic comic books. Anyone, anyone really enjoy the golden age or silver age of comics, like 1950? Yeah, Drew, thank you. I got one. More, more modern comic book fans. Uh, but it's, so if you enjoy like the 1950s stuff, you're going to see a lot of things like, oh, the dastardly duplicity of the duo Dirk and Diana and the devious doppelganger's demands. They love sentences like that. Like, it's crazy. Uh, but if you're not a fan of 1950s comics, maybe this is a stranger word to you. But it's a good word to describe the mindset of the chief priests and elders. Duplicitous means it is someone who is given to or marked by deliberate deceptiveness in behavior and speech. And that's exactly what we see the elders displaying this morning as they come to Jesus and they ask this question. They are being intentionally deceptive in their question. Yeah, Ian? If you want to find sentences like that, can you also read Shakespeare? Ooh, does Shakespeare do a lot of alliteration like that? Yeah. Oh, there we go. So yeah, uh, if if you're a little more noble-minded than the Bennets, uh, not a hard bar to reach. You might be doing Shakespeare and see that. Uh, we're we're definitely more comic book level thinkers, the Bennets. It's been that way forever, guys. We are we are Southern through and through. Now, you might need an example. So. I'm sure none of you do this, but just as a way of an example so you can understand what I mean when I say that the elders, the chief priests, are coming to Jesus and they are being intentionally deceitful with this question. Because, you know, you kind of look at it and you're like, yeah, I can understand. They're going, well, wait, why, why, who gave Jesus the authority to do this? Like, he, he tossed people out of the temple. He came riding in on a donkey like a king. Who gave him this authority? Uh, it's not an innocent question. And let me give you an example of, of how we can know this. So imagine that you have a sibling. And you decide that I'm going to rile my sibling up a little bit. So you go and you find a favorite item of theirs. You know, a piece of clothing that they really like, a pair of shoes, a video game console, uh, a toy. Just something you know that they are immediately or soon going to miss. And they are going to come to you to figure out why you took it. Because they, they know who took it. They know what's going on here. And so you sit down and you're reading a book, minding your own business. And they come up, hey, what do you do with my thing? And, well, I don't know, you're talking about what thing? And they start to shove you, and they start to yell at you a little bit, exactly as you knew they were going to. I know, crazy example, I'm sure no one has ever done anything to their sibling to rile them up like this, but, but work with me, guys. And so, they act sinfully to you, and what do you do? You tattle, exactly, thank you. You tattle on them, mom, I was sitting there minding my own business, and they came up and shoved me. Now, was that a truthful sentence? Yeah. I mean, you were just sitting there. They did just come up to you, but it was a truthful sentence designed to get your parents to believe a blatant lie. And like my band instructor used to tell me all the time, he said, Matt, that was a beautiful note. You did it at the wrong time. It's a wrong note. 
Anytime you tell a truth designed to get someone to believe a lie, you are being duplicitous. You are being intentionally deceitful. And that is what the elders and chief priests are doing when they come to Jesus and they ask him by what authority he is doing these things. I want you to understand that they are being intentionally, deliberately deceptive with this question because they already knew full well who gave Jesus the authority to do these things, and the person who gave him the authority was God himself. Now, that's a bold, harsh statement on my point. I have just painted the leaders of the Jewish religion at that time, the elders and chief priests, with a very broad brush and said that they were sinning coming up to Jesus because they were being intentionally deceptive. But let me give you three reasons why we can know for a fact with certainty that these men were being duplicitous in this question. First of all, they had actually heard the testimony of Jesus' miracles from their own members. You may remember back in Matthew 15, there was this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in which they were concerned that Jesus' disciples weren't doing something. Do you remember what they were upset about? I know I'm picking a random encounter out of many. What do you think, Fox? Oh, that was good. That was another one, but nope, it wasn't that. What do you think? Not the eating set of grains. They weren't washing their hands. Well done, Ian. They were upset that, it's not that they weren't washing their hands, Remember, they weren't being gross. Uh, it's that they weren't washing their hands ceremonially. So the, at the time, there was this ceremonial practice that they put on the same level as, as God's revealed word, and they said, in order to be a faithful follower of God before you eat, you have to do this very specific ceremony to wash your hands. Then you are considered clean and you may eat. So at that time, they came to Jesus because they had heard about this guy up in Galilee, the Galilean region in Capernaum, who was doing these miraculous things, and they wanted to see for themselves. It was the elders and chief priests who had come, or the, it was technically the Pharisees, uh, but they had come from Jerusalem to hear Jesus firsthand. And they surely would have come back, and they would have given a report for what they had seen. Like, it, if I'm a boss and I send my, one of my employees out, and he comes back, I'm going to ask him questions. I want to know what he was doing out in the field. Uh, they didn't just come back and like, well, we're going to keep this to ourselves. They came back and they gave a report to their leaders. They absolutely had a firsthand report of Jesus' miraculous deeds from people they considered trustworthy. And in fact, not just this one event, but if you do a quick scan through of Matthew, and I did this this week, so this isn't exhaustive. Uh, this was a very quick scan through, but I found... 10 unique instances of the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the, the scribes uh, directly challenging Jesus on his teachings. Now, out of these 10, there are six that occur immediately after or immediately before Jesus does some miracle that the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees would have seen. So, I mean, in Matthew 15, we know for a fact these people came from Jerusalem. They saw a miracle. They went back. They would have told about it. But these other 10... Or, or Matthew 15 is right there. So the other nine, excuse me, six of them are events that uh, they probably would have reported back at some point to these chief priests and elders. In fact, you know, they, the other three that remain, so we're up to nine, the Bible doesn't explicitly say Jesus performed a miracle at that point, but what was Jesus' practice wherever he went? What did he do? He taught and he 
Say it loud. Healed. healed. There you go. He taught and he healed. That's what Jesus did everywhere he went. So it's, it's reasonable to say that out of these ten, nine of them, they saw him healing people miraculously. There is exactly one, and that's the one I put with an asterisk right there, in Matthew 16, 1. Exactly one instance where I can say Jesus did not perform a miracle in their presence. And that is when they came up to him and demanded a sign. And Jesus said, I will give you no sign except the sign of jo- Jonah. And then he left. So except for that one instance, nine out of ten of these instances where he uh, had a confrontation with the, the religious leaders probably involved them seeing a miraculous healing of some point. These individuals absolutely had heard reliable testimony of Jesus' miracles. Now, a second reason we can know that these men were being duplicitous in this question wasn't just that they had heard reliable testimony from someone they considered trustworthy, but they had seen it themselves. Look back at verse 14. What does it say Jesus was doing in the temple just a day before? Matthew four, uh, 21, verse 14. Jesus was doing something. What was it? If you're looking at me, I assume you already know the answer, so I'm just going to call on you. If you're looking down, I'm assuming you're reading the answer, so I'm going to call you, so you might as well volunteer. Go ahead, Ian. Uh, after that, keep going. Is it a little past Matthew 14? Yes. He was healing the blind and the deaf. Yeah, so now, now we have surgeries today where if you're blind, depending on the type of blindness you have, like if you have some bad cataracts, you can get surgery and restore some of your blindness over time. Uh, we have uh, physical therapy and some surgeries we can do depending on what caused your lameness, inability to walk, that can help you over time regain some of that mobility you might have lost. But even with all our vast medical advances, which I am I'm extremely thankful we live in this time, right? Uh, where we can literally give someone a brand new organ. I can take out that bad organ and put in a new organ and allow that person to live. I'm extremely thankful for that. I, I've had several friends, hearts, kidneys, uh, I don't think liver yet, uh, but I, I've had several friends that have had their lives directly saved because of this wonderful thing we can do with technology. But as amazing as our technology is, it is fall short of the amazing, miraculous things we see Jesus performing. Jesus healing someone, it wasn't like we have, where there is a long and lengthy recovery time after a transplant surgery. And you know what? Transplants, they last 15, 20 years, and then your body rejects them. That's the most you get out of it. And that's with you being on immune suppressors the whole time. So you're at risk of secondary infections. And when you're in a hospital, there's at risk that you're not even going to get out after you get the, the new the new organ, because your body might reject it. That's what we have to deal with in modern times. But Jesus, he healed people instantly and totally, and that was it. They were healed from that point on. Now, yes, they did grow old and die, but it wasn't because Jesus' healing wasn't effective. Jesus healed them completely. And these chief priests and elders directly witnessed Jesus doing this, this thing that was far beyond any natural thing that could happen. And that alone, that would have been proof enough that they knew for a fact that he had authority given to him from God. But as, uh, but I guarantee you that the chief priests fully recognized, or excuse me, let me start over. I'm, I'm going to hit myself. As chief priests, they knew the Old Testament. And so I guarantee you that when they saw Jesus performing these miracles, 
as they were knowledgeable in the Old Testament, they would have realized Jesus was fulfilling what was written about him in uh, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. Speaking of the Messiah, uh, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like deer, and the tongues of the mute will shout for joy. Guys, these are things we can't do today. Uh, back at Countryside, I had a friend who was deaf. And they didn't realize until she was much older uh, because they'd come into the room and as a baby, she would feel those vibrations in the floor and she'd look at them. And so they thought everything was fine. It wasn't until she was old enough to like, she should be starting to speak when they realized there's something wrong here. And they realized she was deaf and they tried to do a surgery where they, they uh, actually put some wires in the ear to stimulate directly uh, the nerve endings. And they put a little thing around your ear like this headset and it picks up the sound and it directly stimulates your nerve endings. They tried that for her. It didn't work. It was too painful. But Jesus could make the deaf hear. He could open the eyes of the blind. He could make the lame walk. He could make the mute speak. And it's not like Jesus, he, he didn't come in Jerusalem for the first time ever and all of a sudden started performing these miracles, right? He had a long ministry of doing this. So the, the elders, this didn't come as a surprise to them. These were the leaders at the very top of the political ladder uh, in Jerusalem, uh, Judaism. Now, I'm not sure if everyone who's coming confronting Jesus this morning was part of the Sanhedrin. That, is, that was the ruling board over Judaism. But I can tell you for certain that uh, the Sanhedrin was comprised of elders and chief priests. So we, we probably have some overlap here this morning between the Sanhedrin and uh, and the people here this morning. And the reason I mentioned this is because there's a last reason we can know that these men were being duplicitous, and it's because uh, they knew Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead like seven, ten days before this confrontation with Jesus. Remember Lazarus? He was dead. Everyone remember that? You know, a guy named Lazarus, friend of Jesus, uh, People come say, hey, Lazarus is sick. He's almost dead. And the Bible tells us that Jesus loved Lazarus so much that he waited an extra three days before he went to him. And then he raised him from the dead. And uh, Drew, you, you probably remember this. We had a, a youth leader at our church. and He loved the way that the King James put it. It said, Lord, you don't want to open the tomb for it's been three days and he stinketh. <laughs> and he would have been because he was dead. Dead people, they stink. But they open the tomb and Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And he was raised from the dead. And it was such a mighty thing that people were coming to Jesus saying that this is truly a prophet from God. He is giving a message from the Lord. We're going to listen to him. And if this isn't recorded in Matthew, but in John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, we find out that the Sanhedrin hears about this and they have a response. It says, when the large crowds of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So not only did these same chief priests know that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, something that only an individual could do, provided they had authority from God, but despite knowing God had raised Lazarus from dead, their response was they wanted to kill him. Can you imagine that? Imagine that you this morning knew for a fact that God was doing mighty things in your life around you and was calling you directly to repent. 
And your response was not to go, oh my goodness, he raised someone from the dead, but I'm going to kill that person because I want to reject God's authority so great that I want to hide all evidence of God's working in my life. They had the timidity, the gall to come out in front of all the people and confront Jesus and pretend like they had no idea by what authority he was doing these things. They knew it was by God's authority, but they did not want to submit to it. Now, I know I've spent a lot of time in like the first half of the first verse, but we're going we're gonna to pick up here. Uh, there's a reason I really want to focus on this. Uh, we covered the duplicitous question so much, and it's not just because I like the word duplicitous and I like saying it over and over again. What is the theme of Matthew? Say it loud, Joy. Jesus is king. Thank you. We're going to see at the end of Matthew. He gives this beautiful climax to this theme where Jesus proclaims in Matthew 28, 18, that he is king. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But leading up to that, Matthew lays out how step by step, Jesus's kingly authority is rejected before he is crucified. In the weeks to come, we're going to see that he's rejected, yes, right now by the chief and the elders. He's rejected by the Pharisees. He's rejected by the Sadducees. He's rejected by the scribes. The Herodians come into the play even. And finally, when Jesus rejects the demands of the masses who want to make him a political messiah, they turn on him. And they go from praising his name, saying, Hosanna, save us, to crucify, crucify, we choose the murderous Barabbas. So as we enter this section of increasing rejection, uh, that's going to end with Jesus pronouncing seven woes on the religious leaders. That's in Matthew 23. I wanted y'all to understand that this rejection to Christ isn't being done in ignorance. Okay, when when the the leaders come up to Jesus and they say, well, what about this? Well, what about this? They're They're not being genuine. They know who God is. They know who Jesus is. They know he's the Messiah at this point. They have seen, you know, uh, they have seen irrefutable proof of it at this point. And yet, they come to him trying to undermine the authority of God. The judgment Jesus, Jesus is going to pronounce on them is going to be perfectly deserved. But before we get there, weeks from now, right now, we see that Jesus gives them a deliberate counter to their question. This is the second point in our lesson this morning, a deliberate counter. In verses 24 through 25, Jesus responds, I will also ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Now look, Jesus, he's not trying to be coy or childish with this answer. You know, it's not like, well, I know you are, but what am I? This is, (laughs) he's he's responding this way for, for several very specific reasons. First of all, he knew they didn't actually care about the truth, okay? We've been covering this this morning. We talked about their duplicity. That's just an excuse for me to say the word duplicity one more time. I'll be honest. Jesus is well aware of the fact that they are being duplicitous, and they don't care about the truth. Uh, Much like every other group that is going to come to him over the next couple weeks, their goal is just to try to get people to think less about Jesus and more about themselves. In their mind, it doesn't matter how Jesus responds, just getting Jesus to respond at all to their question in their mind is Jesus losing. If he says, well, you know, I get my authority from man, well, that's it. They've won. 
Well, you, you don't get to raise people from the dead just because your authority comes from man. Why are y'all guys listening to him? We are the rulers God has appointed, right? We're the, we're the Sanhedrin. We're the chief priests. We're the elders. We are the physical embodiment of God's revelation to the world. Sound like some, some other religion we know of who claims such things? Catholicism. You know, the, the, that's what they say about the Pope. They say, well, my, my authority is given from God, therefore you need to listen to me more. Guys, what is the only authority we get to turn to when it comes to God's authority? Is it man? Is it me this morning? Do I, do I get a claim that I come in the authority of God? No, I'm a sinful person, guys. I am flawed. It is only the Bible that I get to turn to and say, guys, this is God's authority that he has revealed and there is no flaw with it. So they think if they can get him to say he's from man, they say, well, don't listen to him, listen to us. And if he says, well, my authority comes from God, they can say he's blasphemous. Now, of course, Matthew here, he's saying from heaven instead of from God. Just, just remember, this is the same way that, Jesus, or that Matthew has done in the past, where he says the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God. And that's just because he didn't want to write the name of God uh, because he was treating it with so much respect. Just, just a little aside there. When it says my authority comes from heaven, it's a substitution for saying that my authority comes from God. Uh, so Jesus' response, also a second reason. So w- one of the reasons is he knew they didn't care about the truth. Another reason Jesus is responding this way is because Jesus' response makes use of a very common uh, debate tactic among rabbis at the time. So at the time, a rabbi would ask you a question. And instead of responding to that question, you would answer with another question whose answer answered the first question. Did y'all follow that? No, it's okay. I didn't either, and I said it. So, so let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, you come up to me, and you say something like, uh, is it warm outside, Rabbi Matthew? And I would say, oh, Rabbi Brandon, is water wet? Now, the answer to my question to Brandon is, is yes, and that is answering his first question. Is it warm outside? So that, that's what it was. You ask me a question, I give you a question whose answer answers your question. I know. It's how, they, it's how they did things. So Jesus is using this method of answering their question with a question to answer their answer. Answer their question. Yeah. <laughs> now, okay, what I did, that was a poor, poor example because uh, it's very surface level. It's a yes or no question. The point of them using this technique in a rabbi or rabbinical debate was it was supposed to get you thinking about the answer. Like it wasn't just let me give you this answer. It was, let me get you to think about it so that you can come to understand the truth yourself. Uh, So Jesus isn't evading the question. He's actually getting them to answer their own question. Now, the third reason Jesus is answering their question this way is he is directly linking John the Baptist's ministry to himself right now. Uh, For anyone listening at the time or, or reading Matthew's account later on, who honestly wanted to know, like, oh, hey, where is Jesus getting this authority from? How is he doing these things? Uh, For anyone who's honestly coming, seeking Christ, wanting to know his authority, then Jesus is telling them, think back to John. John witnessed about me. Is John's message from heaven, from God, or is it just from man? He's wanting them to get to think about what was written about John the Baptist in Malachi 3.1, uh, which, which said, Behold, 
I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this, this was both a prophecy about the Messiah coming. It was a prophecy about the one who would come before the Messiah, John the Baptist. So Jesus deliberately counters their duplicitous question with an invitation to consider God's authority. But sadly, instead of considering God's authority, the chief priests and the elders give a deflecting answer. Look again at the conversation they have with themselves before they answer Christ. In verse 25, we read, And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven... He will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say for men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. I want you to notice just a couple things about this exchange they have with each other. First of all, they recognize quite correctly that there are only two possibilities about where Jesus' or John's authority came from. Either it comes uh, from men or it comes from God. Notice how they're not trying to pull this, oh, he's casting out Satan by Satan nonsense, like they they tried to do with Jesus uh, previously when he was casting out the demons, and they said, oh, he casts out demons by Beelzebub. Uh, They're not trying that anymore. They recognize there are only two options. It came from God, or it came from man. Now, I want you to take a moment, and unlike the the chief priests and the elders in this passage, I want you to to think for just a minute about what Jesus is really asking them and answer this question. What kind of things can the authority of man permit you to do? What do you think, Taylor? Uh, slowly build a house over several months as a random example. No, nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Ian? You can immediately destroy a house. Immediately destroy it. You can demolish a house, yeah. You can get a permit to do that. What else can man give you the authority to do? You can shout it out. You don't need to raise your hand. Just fruit. Drive a car. What's that? Enter a theme park. Sure. You have to get permission. Buy groceries, yep. Have a home. home. Yeah. What's that? Educate people, yeah. Yeah. Mow a lawn. lawn. Have a business mowing lawns? Uh, Just just mowing a lawn in general? Yeah. Sure. Perjury? Oh, perform surgery, yes. I'm like, perjury? I I guess technically man can give you the authority to commit perjury. I can get a presidential pardon, sure. Yeah, Noah. Make bad decisions. Oh, can it ever give you permission to make bad decisions? We got a lot of laws right now that let you make some bad decisions in life. Murder. Murder. Yeah, qualified immunity. Look it up. It's horrifying. Get a phone. Get a phone. Yeah, okay. That's great answers. That's great answers. So I want you to think about this. Uh, I would lump everything you just said into three broad categories. Man-given authority can permit you to be somewhere. For example, we're in the school right now because we paid Lance Thompson Elementary money, and they said, okay, you can use our facilities. It can permit you to say something. That's something we get to enjoy in America, right? First Amendment. We get the freedom of speech. And it can permit you to do something, like make bad decisions. Uh, Or you want to go fishing? You have to get a fishing license. You want to go driving? Like I think Brandon said, you got to get a driver's license. Otherwise, it's illegal. You want to get married? You have to get a marriage license. Otherwise, it's illegal. Here's a weird one for you. Yeah, I think about it later, guys. You have to get a marriage license to get married. Otherwise, it's illegal. So, <laughs> I know, everyone just like had a, you know, try to shift in the third gear without the clutch. I know, I know. 
So these are the sort of things that man's authority can, commit, can permit us to do. And if you consider what Jesus had done up into the week so far, most of what he did would fall into one of these three broad categories. Riding into Jerusalem on the donkey as a, basically throwing a parade. Yeah, yeah, man's authority could have permitted him to do that. Uh, driving out the, the money changers. Yes, man's authority could have permitted him to do that. Teaching at the temple. Yeah, man's, man's authority could have permitted him to do that. Am I saying Jesus needed their man's authority? No. I'm just saying that the things Jesus did could have been granted to him by man's authority. But there is one thing Jesus did that no amount of permission given to him from man's authority could have allowed him to do. What was that thing? Miracles, the healing of the people. Uh, Which I think, yeah, uh, they didn't allow him to cast out demons, cure leprosy, make the blind see, make the lame walk, make the deaf hear, or raise the dead. These are things, doesn't matter how many raise the dead licenses the government gives me, I can't bring someone back to life. Sadly, however, as the priests and elders discuss this among themselves, we see that they have no regard for the truth. They don't care. They, they don't care if God's authority came from men or from God, or, or Jesus' authority came from men or God. They only care about how the people are going to react, how it's going to impact their own authority based on the answer they give. And so they deflect Jesus' answer saying, we do not know. Which brings us to the end of the passage with Jesus' dignified conclusion. He simply says at the end of verse 27, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You know, Jesus, he didn't need to take a victory lap. You know, like, oh yeah, I just slammed on those Pharisees like for the hundredth time. When are they going to stop stepping up? Because I got nothing but gain. No, Jesus didn't need to take another victory lap. It doesn't matter how many miracles they see happen right in front of their faces. They're never going to come to God. And Jesus knows that. He knows that it doesn't matter if someone comes back from the dead because he literally did that, and instead of repenting, they just want to kill the guy. So instead, Jesus gives them a perfect, dignified conclusion to their attack on his authority. And as we'll see over and over for like the next month as we go over their attacks on Jesus and his responses to them and the parables he teaches because of their attacks on him, uh, Jesus takes the rejections of him and instead of attacking them, he reaches out to those seeking him, calling them to himself. So how can we apply this passage to our lives? Well, I really only have like one application for you all this morning. It's really easy. I want you to consider who is in charge of your life. The chief priests and elders, they unmistakably knew that Jesus' authority came from God, and yet they chose to reject it. So I've got to ask, who is doing the same here this thing this morning? And this isn't a raise your hands moment. Keep them down. We're not Baptists. This isn't an altar call. I want you to be thinking about this throughout the day, throughout the week. Who's in charge of your life? Is there anyone here today who, like the chief priests and elders, are saying, yeah, you know what? I come here week after week. I know that what these guys are saying, they're preaching from the Bible. I know this is God's words. I know that this is God's authority, but I don't want it. I really like the fact that I get to do this thing over here instead of submitting to God over there. 
I want my sin. Or are you going to turn to Christ? When you consider who's in charge of your life, are you going to choose your sin and keep yourself in charge, which is a, it's a lie, guys. You're not in charge. Like, if, if you think you're in charge by rejecting Christ, you're deluding yourself. The Bible tells us you're a slave to sin. You're under Satan's power. You can't resist his temptations. Like, that's, that's reality. And he is a cruel and terrible master. Or are you going to make God the one in charge of your life? Well, you, as Romans 10, 9 says, confess him as Lord, as the one who has the full authority and, and the one that you are going to submit to in your life. Are you going to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, having borne the full weight of the wrath of God so that your sins, the sins that deserved God's punishment, could be forgiven, and instead God can look at you and see Christ's righteousness and be saved? Who's in charge here anyways? I want you all guys to think about that so carefully this week. Let's go and pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that we live in a country where we do get to enjoy the freedom to openly worship you. And though that freedom we enjoy may be given by man's authority, we know that you are the one who gave them that authority in the first place. That there is no authority that exists on this earth that you did not first establish. Father, I pray that we would not be like the chief priests and the elders, doubly hardening our hearts against you, knowing that you are Lord, the Messiah who saves, and yet refusing to give you the honor and praise you deserve, refusing to bow before you and confess you as Lord. Lord, I pray that there is anyone here today that has not confessed that they are a sinner and that you raised Christ from the dead to be a substitution for us, that they would this morning cry out to you and be saved. For Father, we do love you. We thank you for sending your Son to die in our place. And we pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen.